0: Infantry men in the United States Marine Corps. I had to deal with some very aggressive crowds when I was in Iraq. Individuals themselves aren't usually a problem. But when they get collectively together and they create a mob, the mob is the weapon. I was ready to fight. I saw a lot of shit back in my day, but I was not going to die on the floor of the House of Representatives. Like, I was not going to get taken out by some insurrectionist bastard. My plan was to stab somebody in the eye and in the throat and take away their weapon and fight to survive. I saw a bunch of buses pull up, and there were buses to evacuate us. And let me tell you, in coups, when you leave the capital, you've lost. And so I I started texting every member I could in all of our text chains, like, do not leave. Like, if they tell you to leave, like, do not leave. Like, you're safe for staying here. Like, we get on those buses. There's no guarantee we're ever coming back.
1: This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The noose around Donald Trump's neck continues to tighten as more information comes to light, detailing his likely central role in the Capitol insurrection. Two dozen Republicans are among 66 former members of Congress who've signed a brief urging a federal judge to reject Donald Trump's efforts to block a House committee from accessing the former president's White House records.
2: We're learning just now new details about hundreds, hundreds of records that the former president, Donald Trump, is trying to keep secret from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. According to a sworn... Foreign declaration from B. John Laster uh, with the National Archives in Washington. Donald uh, Trump does not want to release more than 700 pages of handwritten notes, draft documents, and daily logs from the files of his closest advisors over at the White House. Those files cover dates up to and on January 6th and include specifics about efforts to try to overturn Trump's election loss.
1: Politico reported that the brief contends that no possible argument about executive privilege could overcome Congress's need for documents to probe the violent attack on the Capitol, one fueled by Trump's false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. From what is publicly known, it is clear that Donald Trump played an outsized and likely central role in orchestrating the events that gave rise to the January 6th attack, states the brief. Senate Minority Leader McConnell explained the efforts to overturn the election were not the official acts of a president. They were a disgraceful dereliction of duty, the brief states the executive privilege does not apply thus ending the inquiry and dooming the motion presently before the court
3: they really lay it all out in these documents what it is that the president former president is trying to keep from them including prepared talking points for kaylee mcenany who was then the press secretary files of stephen miller's of course who was a top aide to the president on policy but also worked with him closely on other matters the deputy white house counsel pat philbin his name is also listed in there and so All of this is really fascinating, but I think what could be the most critical are the call logs from the president and the vice president at the time, because former president Trump is someone who often does not, he doesn't email or text really on that nature. He does make a lot of phone calls. That is something that is well known about him. And so if they could see the call logs of whom the president was speaking to that day, that could be incredibly critical to that investigation. And so now we see why Trump does not want the January 6th investigators to get their hands on this. But I do think by them laying it out, it is a pretty explicit case of why they think those investigators should see them.
1: It's the clearest sign yet that Trump's desire to shield his communications from the January 6th committee subpoena will prove to be dead on arrival. What will come of this information, though, is an entirely different question. Many lawmakers have called for a special prosecutor to investigate Trump's unlawful actions based on the evidence uncovered with a move to bar him from future office or even prosecute
4: him for his actions. Cover the truth and the reason Donald Trump is claiming executive privilege is because he doesn't want people to know the truth because whatever is in those documents is surely embarrassing and probably indicting so he doesn't want people to see it plus he probably thinks it'll make it harder for him to run in 2024 if he ultimately decides to do that
1: meanwhile in magaland things continue to get fucking weird and as the late great gonzo journalist hunter s thompson once wrote when the going gets weird the weird turns pro it could be the only way to account for Trump's continued and desperate attempt to whitewash what happened on January 6th while continuing to insist that the election was stolen. The results, predictably, are frightening as frustrated MAGA stalwarts call for armed revolution. Well, it means that the coup
0: is ongoing. Uh, it means that the coup has moved from, um, you know, the rabble those losers, those wannabe terrorists, that showed up on January 6th into the political realm, which actually does happen a lot if you follow terrorism, they sometimes find themselves into politics, and that there's going to be another attempt at this at some point. Uh, And either it will be in the courtrooms, it will be in the boardrooms, that's what you're seeing with Fox News, or it will be uh, in the uh, voting booths where they're making more difficult for people to vote, or they're just going to cancel altogether uh, the results of elections. So uh, it's a scary situation for this country Uh, The insurgency has moved on from a bunch of people wearing camel pants to a bunch of men and women uh, wearing Brooks Brothers. Uh, And
1: it is probably more
0: dangerous uh, than what I saw on January 6th.
1: Tucker Carlson has taken things one step further with the release of his three-part series that claims, amongst other ludicrous theories, that January 6th was a false flag operation meant to crack down on the patriot right.
0: war on terror is here, is coming after half of the country. The helicopters have left Afghanistan, and now they've landed here at home. And The left is hunting the right, sticking them in Guantanamo Bay for American citizens, leaving them there to rot. We are dealing with an insurgency in the United
5: States. Terrorism for white supremacy is the most lethal threat to Homeland. I've been told that I'm a white nationalist. Me. FBI, come on your up They've begun to fight a new enemy in a new war on
6: terror Not al-Qaeda, white supremacy. False flags have happened in this country
3: oh. One of which may have been January 6th His
2: truth is marching
6: on
1: He's been cobbling this theory together on his show for months now Soon after President Biden was inaugurated, Carlson interpreted Biden's inaugural speech comments about targeting white nationalists and domestic extremists as somehow revealing a plan to cast the entirety of the political right as targets of the federal government. Never mind that the Department of Homeland Security had elevated the threat posed by those groups even during the Trump administration. This was somehow Biden trying to use January 6th as a way to imprison his foes. Alios
5: Alexander, Nick Fuentes, just about uh, uh, everyone in uh, the insurrection movement, people who actually advertised the Stop the Steal Live, like physically traveling around the country from state capital to state capital, doing practice runs, like when they invaded uh, uh, the Georgia capital. Um, These, and in Michigan, uh, these folks are ecstatic because they have the biggest voice on cable, not just to help them get their message out, but to help them bilk all of their followers, all of these gullible people who watch Fox News, who you know, unfortunately uh, are, are duped into this, not alternative reality, but mythology, uh, they're willing to throw their money at them because they think that's like the patriotic thing to do.
1: Never mind the fact that the biggest internal threat we face as a nation today continues to be fanatics gun nuts, neo-Nazis, and extremists of all stripes who Trump let out of the bottle like a demented fucking genie to become the shock
2: troops of his MAGA revolution. A January 6th bombshell. Rolling Stone Magazine reporting that organizers of the Capitol rally that day had been promised a, quote, blanket pardon by a U.S. Congressman.
3: Rolling Stone reports Arizona Congressman Paul Gosar gave protest organizers the impression that he had spoken to then-President Trump about the pardons for an unrelated investigation.
5: The organizers said they allegedly spoke to quote, a dozen US representatives or their teams. They named representative Paul Gosar and representative Andy Biggs of Arizona, representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, Louis Gomert of Texas and Mo Brooks of Alabama, all Republican congressmen and women. Right now we don't know what was discussed with each representative by those planners, but the organizers gave Rolling Stone an example with Representative Gosar, who's saying he offered them the possibility of receiving a quote, "blanket pardon to motivate them. To plan the rallies.
1: Last week, we discussed how political violence and intimidation is being used to target secretaries of state and those in charge of elections across the country. But the truth is, the GOP, at its core, has become a party that supports political violence. The idea being that you elites better pay attention or we're coming for you. In many respects, January 6th was a dress rehearsal for what's to come as the right continues to embrace this type of apocalyptic rhetoric. Neo-Nazis
5: are producing videos where they're explicitly talking about going to these school boards to recruit and radicalize Republicans who are upset because they're watching Tucker Carlson all the time. It, you know, I'm when I use the word fascist, when I use the word Nazi, i'm not talking about republicans i'm being specific with my language these are the people who are celebrating some of the most popular republican senators today
0: the amount of rhetoric that i was hearing uh reminded me of uh, the lead up to rwanda uh genocide uh that was exactly the kind of what messaging you're hearing right now by the way uh there is just a lot of things that were adding up to me to the point where i knew that this was more serious than just a bunch of you know, drunk wannabe militia members that were storming the Capitol.
1: During his five plus years as a politician and president before January 6 2021, Donald Trump repeatedly and suggestively alluded to the prospect of violence by his supporters. Then it happened. Those supporters took the hint and stormed the US Capitol, intent on overturning a democratic election on the basis of false claims that it had been stolen from them. Despite it all, nearly 10 months after January 6th, suggestions of legitimized violence continue to permeate the GOP and the conservative movement. Trump has faded into the background somewhat thanks to his bans from social media and his being out of office but others have gladly picked up the torch with almost no pushback from their party leadership.
4: These Republican leaders have to get a grip on reality. I mean, they're like some mushroom taking college students who've lost any sense of what's real anymore. The most recent example involves Representative Marjorie Taylor
1: Greene of Georgia, who this week suggested that the attack on the Capitol actually was in line with the Declaration of Independence. She claimed that violence at demonstrations for racial justice was worse, whereas January 6th was just a riot at the Capitol. And if you think about what our Declaration of Independence says, it says to overthrow tyrants.
6: But the real truth is the communist revolution that the Democrats funded and waged every single day and every single night in American cities all across our country. You see, that was an attack on innocent American people, whereas January 6th was just a riot at the Capitol. And if you think about what our Declaration of Independence says, it says to overthrow tyrants. So there's a clear difference between January 6th and the Marxist communist revolution, that Antifa BLM Democrat ground troops waged on the American people in 2020. But this selfish, self-righteous, Congress that only serves itself refuses to talk about the people all they want to talk about is the riot on January 6th and I'm fed up with it, I'm sick of it and I'm tired of their lies.
1: Many want to discount Green as just a fucking imbecile, a QAnon supporting fucking lunatic non-representative of the larger body politic. The problem is that that's not true. Well, the lunatic part is true, but the fact remains she is an elected member of Congress and a Republican in good standing. In addition, Green's comment reflects how many Republicans spoke about January 6th beforehand. As The Post reported at the time, several Republicans had compared the situation to 1776 and otherwise had suggested a need for violence. These were not allusions to peaceful efforts to overturn an election. They were about armed revolution.
6: And I did say that today was 1776. Uh, You know, I woke up knowing that my first uh, agenda item in Congress was signing my name to a document, knowing that people would come after me, calling me a traitor, calling me a seditionist, accusing me of trying to overthrow an election when I was standing for the Constitution that I took an oath to swore and and swore to defend and support. And, And that's exactly what I was doing. And just like our founding fathers signed their names, to a document, knowing the consequences that would come after that they they did it because they believed in, in what was right for our nation, in what was right for the people of America. And, uh, you know, I, I took that very seriously that I was about to in, engage in an act just like them, signing my name to that document. It's, 1776 is the foundation of our country, and I'm proud to to stand and defend that foundation and fight for freedom.
1: Even the day after January 6th, Representative Mo Brooke who wore a fucking body armor to stop the steel rally, compared the situation to Nazi Germany, in which people who are upset could either emigrate or you can resist, often through violence. Today is the day
2: American patrons start taking down names and kicking ass.
1: Then there's fucking Madison Crawthorn, who has positioned himself as a kind of next-generation Trump, his words are terrifying as they allude directly to a kind of Hunger Games style future.
0: Everything that we're sitting here talking about, we're all so passionate right now. The things that we are wanting to fight for, it doesn't matter if our votes don't count.
3: That's exactly right. Because, you know,
0: if our election systems continue to be rigged and continue to be stolen, then it's, it's going to lead to one place, and it's bloodshed. And I will tell you, as much as I'm willing to defend our liberty at all costs, there's nothing that I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American. And the way that we can have recourse against that is if we all passionately demand that we have election security in all 50 states.
1: The conservative Claremont Institute, which employs John Eastman, the embattled architect of Trump's failed effort to overturn the election in Congress, published a piece in March calling for a counter-revolution. It said those counter-revolutionaries must be willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. A
5: few things have shocked me uh, recently with it in the Trump world, but this was one of them. Trump and Trumpism corrupts, and uh, we're seeing that in so many realms, and it's corrupting uh, intellectuals, it's corrupting intellectual institutions. For some of the things I've written over the past two and a half years about Trump, I've gotten some nasty letters from people over at Claremont. And um, I plan to write back to them uh, congratulating them on their new colleagues because I think they've, they've really uh, disgraced themselves now.
1: Pearson Sharp, a host on Trump's favorite cable news outlet, One America News delivered a commentary in June suggesting execution for as many tens of
2: thousands of people supposedly responsible for stealing the election. Which raises even more questions about exactly how many people were involved in these efforts to undermine the election? Hundreds? Thousands? Tens of thousands? How many people does it take to carry out a coup against the presidency? And when all the dust settles from the audit in Arizona and the potential audits in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin, what happens to all these people who are responsible for overthrowing the election? What are the consequences for traitors who meddled with our sacred democratic process and tried to steal power by taking away the voices of the American people? What happens to them? Well, in the past, America had a very good solution for dealing with such traitors, execution.
1: If you don't think this stuff has an effect, you're fucking nuts. When a full third of this nation, including a majority of those who identify as Republicans, believe the election was stolen, this kind of rhetoric becomes downright dangerous especially as those who are prone to believe this bullshit live inside a fucking bubble where the only news they get is this kind of news to them trump is the messiah and tucker carlson the only one who dares to tell the truth this makes the work of the january 6 committee all the more important but it must come with consequences for those who incited then aided and abetted the rioters This all needs to be shut down or we're in deep, deep trouble. And we likely will be living with this kind of political violence as a reality for years to come. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Neil Ketal the former Obama administration acting solicitor general of the United States and the New York Times best-selling author of Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. In addition, Neil runs one of the largest Supreme Court practices in the world where he occupies the role formerly held by now Chief Justice John Roberts. From the legal perspective, the man is an absolute heavy hitter and one of the sharpest minds we've had on the show to date. He has orally argued 43 cases before the Supreme Court, with 41 of them in the last decade. At the age of 50, he has already argued more Supreme Court cases in the United States history than any other minority attorney, breaking the record of Thurgood Marshall. He joins us today on Maya Culpa to discuss Trump's bogus claims of executive privilege and what the end result will be on the January 6th committee. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, so Neil, I have a big picture question for you about the January 6th committee. What do you believe will and should be its ultimate outcome? If it's to get to the truth, what if that truth reveals without a doubt that Trump was part of the planning of the insurrection or that... If it's proven that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Paul Gosar, Don Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, Josh Hawley aided the insurrectionists in the days before the riot, what happens then? I mean, how do we get some measure of real accountability here?
4: So, Tim, first of all, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, I've been watching you from a distance for a long time and your journey—I'll call Uh, it—and it's been. Incredibly impressive. I read your book. And, uh, you know, I think what you did takes a lot of guts. You know, frankly, I wish more people had your courage in this country. Um, you know, we all make mistakes. Um, and the question is, do we learn from them? And do we teach others to learn from them? And, and that's what you've been doing uh, in your writing and on this podcast and the like, um, and drawing attention to really one of the, if not the greatest threat to our democracy since our country was founded. Um, So you asked, Michael, about the uh, January 6th um, investigation. And it seems to me the primary mission of that committee is to just find out the truth and take the truth where it leads. Um, And we already know a lot or even before the investigation began. So we know that Donald Trump filed a bunch of bogus lawsuits right after the election and lost, I think, 64 times. And basically, he ran out of courts to lose him. I mean, federal court, (laughs) state court, trial court, U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, everywhere. We know that Trump held his pep rally on January 6th. We know that before that, he maneuvered, with a guy who was like an environmental lawyer at the Justice Department, a relatively low level guy, Jeff Clark, to try and get the Justice Department to file a bogus lawsuit to throw out the election results. And we know that the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, rejected this garbage. And indeed, the senior leadership of the Justice Department threatened to resign over this, everyone except for lackey Jeffrey Clark. We also know Trump called the election bogus and illegal, and tried to get fundraising off of them like, and he's still continuing with these lies today. We know that Donald Trump said to the Georgia Secretary of State, find me 11,780 votes. And we know that the next day, right after that, that B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney, the top federal lawyer in Georgia, resigned. So that's just before the committee even began its work. I have been a little dismayed at this committee for going so slow. Um, you know, I think this is a problem that Democrats have had generally, which is they uh, like to talk and they don't understand litigation. They don't understand Donald Trump's delay tactics, which you know better than anyone. And so, um, as a result, they you know go at glacial speed, and Trump runs out the clock. Um, and uh, I think that's unforgivable in this instance. I mean, this is the most serious investigation in our lifetimes. It should be done you know, obviously carefully, but it should be done quickly. And there's no excuse. We're almost a year after January 6th now, and we still don't have answers to a lot of basic questions.
1: You know, it's interesting because the January 6th committee, there's really two aspects that they need to be looking at. The first aspect is really the attack by the insurrectionists, the physical attack, and all of those individuals who went into the Capitol? The ones screaming, "Where are you, Nancy?" The ones that were screaming, you know, "Hang Mike Pence" and so on. But then there is the second one, which was the ones by like Rudy Giuliani, the legal team who actually sought to prevent Joe Biden's um, confirmation based upon the the vote that was to take place. And that's another aspect that I just don't see any movement about because we already know who the key players are there, right? So, of course, you have Donald. And I'm certain that you have some of his uh, genius advisors like Jared and Ivanka around. But then you had Rudy Giuliani. And, of course, we know because there are thousands and maybe a million documents that have been taken during the raid on his home. But you also, of course, have Steve Bannon, who was very vocal and saying that he was there, for example, you know, at the Willard um, Hotel in the war room. You also then have uh, former uh, police commissioner Bernie Kerrick who decided to get into the action with John Eastman and a series of other people. And this is extremely important because all of these people, including Bernie Kerrick, need to be brought before the committee so that we can all get a better sense. Because it's not just one way. Hey, let's take a look at the insurrection. There's 600 or so people that have been, you know, now um picked up and have cases pending against them there's a much bigger picture here and that's why i asked you you know how do we get some measure of real accountability here because like you i too along with probably all of my listeners we're all frustrated we're frustrated as hell that this is like molasses flowing
4: down a mountain yeah i i'm not going to be able to salve your wounds here because i agree with you um you know, every basically what we do know in that cast of characters from Bernie Kerik to Rudy Giuliani and stuff, it's basically like the bar, the cantina, in Star Wars. I mean, it's a bunch of misfits, criminals, uh, and the like who were surrounding themselves with the president and telling him what he wanted to hear. Um, and you know, democracy be damned, just win at all costs. And every single you know, week, we learn more and more about who was involved, the House Republicans, you know, that keeps on going up in terms of who actually knew about this and how plan it and, and the like. I mean, honestly, Michael, it's kind of like trying to plan a wedding. If we invite Representative Gosar, we got to invite Lauren Boebert. And of course, Marjorie Taylor Green's going to crash no matter what. I mean, these people are all in on the action. And the question is, when is the investigation? going to actually subpoena all of these people, find out what happened, and then, you know, bring make referral, criminal referrals to the Justice Department. I'm pleased that, you know, that Steve Bannon has now finally been referred to the Justice Department for contempt because he's afraid to even go to Congress under oath and tell the truth. Um, and, you know, I think there should be very serious consequences for that. I mean, obviously, you went and testified on the Hill and told your truth for a long, long period of time. That's the kind of thing people do, even when, as your book you know, harrowingly documents, you were worried about death threats and the like, but that's what you do as a citizen. You go and tell the Congress of the United States, our democratic body, what actually happened. And Bannon's afraid to do that. So there's no question in my mind that the Justice Department has to seek to jail Steve Bannon. But the problem for me is, you know, it's what, October 29th and, you know, January 6th was, as I said, almost a year ago now, and we're finally getting around to this. Um, It's incomprehensible to me why this delay has taken so long. Uh, You know, it would be unforgivable if it was a minor matter. um, But on something this serious, I mean, come on.
1: Look, on this show, we're very critical, not just of Donald Trump and the Marjorie Taylor Greens with her AR-15s and the Rudy Kaludi, moronic Giuliani and, you know, the Josh Hawley's and these, these fucking jerk offs of the world. That's not who we're only, um, who we only uh, talk about here. For Merrick Garland, this is, as far as I'm concerned, this is a Merrick Garland issue What I know I was looking for when I heard that Merrick Garland was going to be our next Attorney General was somebody that was going to undo the damage that Bill Barr and Donald Trump caused in terms of the weaponization of the Justice Department to go after people. And this is what we're all waiting for. Now Steve Bannon is merely a cog in the wheel. Steve Bannon is not the, he's not the prize, he's he's just like I said. He's just a cog in the wheel that's going to use this to fundraise off of. And he's going to make money off of it. And he has now fodder to talk about on his program. Or, you know, he's going to try to make the republic, he's going to make himself into a martyr to the Republican Party. This is really the full danger. The fact that nothing is moving. There is no special counsel that is actually dedicated like a Robert Mueller in order to do this. And everybody gets up, whether it's Adam Schiff or Swalwell or any of these other, uh, Jerry Nadler, they get up and they, they make compelling arguments if that's the argument you want to hear. But you're right. Steve Bannon is just one, he's one person who's going to end up, testif- if he testifies, but now you have Dan Scavino, um, Kash Patel, Mark Meadows, they're now negotiating in order to come. There was no negotiating with me. And by the way, I didn't testify um, Neil, one time, that nine hour you know shit show, um, nine times I testified before Congress, each one, each one for at least nine hours. Some were even more. The one with the House Select Committee on Intelligence by Adam Schiff, not only did I do it once, I had to then come back. I came back a month later. So yeah, it's my obligation to provide information. And that's exactly what I believe, as you rightfully stated, that's what I believe everybody's supposed to be doing. What am I missing?
4: Yeah. So I um, I just remember from the book, just that scene in which you stop, I think at like a rest stop or something, and you're afraid for your life when you're driving to D.C. to testify. And, you know, it still sticks with me because that is what we expect of American citizens, even when they're not, you know, facing what you were facing And the idea that a president can surround himself with people who do the reverse and thumb their nose at law enforcement apparatus, I just think is unforgivable. Now, now with respect to Merrick Garland, I think you and I are going to disagree a little bit because Merrick Garland is he's got a very careful lawyerly demeanor. To me, that's a good thing. We've already lived through, you know, joker attorneys general uh, who were just partisan hacks. And I wouldn't want to see Garland breaking the norms of the department. So, for example, you know, he was asked this week by Senator Whitehouse and others about the status of the investigation on January 6th and the like, and he was basically evasive. But that's what we actually want in an attorney general. Um, And I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know that you disagree with this. I mean, basically, we want an attorney general who's going to keep criminal investigations confidential until there's an indictment. Now, having said that, the key is going to be, is Merrick Garland going to actually act, or is he just going to sit on his hands and say, this is too hard, I'm too afraid, or something like that. So the first test of this, Michael, will see is, is he going to seek to jail Steve Bannon? And you're absolutely right to say that's just one little piece. He's just a cog, But that to me is the first signal, the canary in the coal mine. If he doesn't seek to do that, then I'm going to be incredibly concerned. Then, Is he doing a full investigation into Donald Trump and the members of Congress and all these other enablers? That'll be the next test. And along with that, the prosecutions that are currently going on in DC, you know, Chief Judge Beryl Howard in in DC yesterday complained that the Justice Department was basically giving misdemeanor slaps on the wrist to some of these very severe criminals you know, that's something that really concerns me as well. Why are these penalties so light for something as grave as storming the Capitol uh, armed uh, and the like? So I don't think we should get misled by the Merrick Garland demeanor right now. He's following the long traditions of the Justice Department. Um, And just because the Republican attorneys general, uh, like Barr and the stuff, acted like hotheads doesn't mean Merrick Garland is going to or should. Um, But Time will tell. And I only have a little bit more patience at this point, Michael. So the difference between you and me is just that little bit.
1: Sure. But let me use your own words. We're coming on one year since the January 6th insurrection. Nothing has happened so far. We've had a bunch of relatively meaningless committee hearings. Everybody gets up and they pound their fist onto the table. They make their five-minute speeches so that they can use it for their own Uh, Video clips and so on. This is all slow moving. While I agree, we need to have somebody, a better tempered, not a weaponized attorney general as we do in Merrick Garland. But come on, man, right? There are so many issues. And I've often said this to many prosecutors you don't need to kill 10 people to be charged with murder. There are more than enough facts and documentary evidence in order to indict Trump. Jared, Ivanka, Don, Alan Weisselberg, Matt Calamari, the Trump Organization, Matt Gates, Josh Hawley. There's more than enough documentation there. So what is he doing? Why do we not have 12, maybe 15 special counsels looking at various different things that I believe a fifth grader can actually prove? Right. So
4: first of all, I don't think the special counsel route is gonna actually change anything. So I don't think it's it's necessary here um, because you know, the typical kind of case for a special counsel is when there's a conflict of interest, when the special counsel is being asked to investigate the, his higher up, like the president or vice president, and the attorney general who was nominated by that person and serves at the pleasure of the president can't easily kind of investigate his boss. So that's generally what it's for. And now it's true that when we wrote those regulations back in 1999, We said it could be done for a broader purpose if the quote public interest requires it. It's not clear to me that the public interest here requires a special counsel because, you know, there isn't a conflict of interest. It's not, you know, unheard of for a criminal for a criminal investigation of a former high ranking, uh, you know, government official to take place. Now, it might be that we need a special counsel. I don't know. Um, I don't know all of the facts and documents and, you know, none of us do that are at issue here, but I fundamentally agree with you. This thing has to be done expeditiously. And, you know, the Justice Department can't ply, play by the same rulebook when it comes to speed and diligence that it does in ordinary criminal investigations, because as you have documented better than anyone, Donald Trump will break every norm Will stall every chance he gets, will lie, will cheat, and steal to avoid having to tell the truth. And that's what he's instructing other people to do. And so the Justice Department has to not, you know, they don't have to like go and publicly, you know, you know, launder their evidence before an indictment, of course not. But they have to understand this is a war and a war against the truth. And that means you know, arming everything up with litigators to move quickly and file motions to expedite everything when it comes to enforcing subpoenas and the criminal sanctions and the like. And you can't treat this just like any other case.
1: I mean, I think this is a war against our democracy, but recently the Washington Post story on the Willard Hotel, uh, it's entitled War Room, that was set up by Trump loyalists, to me, is absolutely shocking. It's deplorable, it's many, many different things. I mean, does there need to be a dead body with a note from Rudy Colluti Giuliani that says I did it before somebody actually gets held accountable? What I don't understand, and, I, and this is where I really need your help here. I don't understand how a group of senior Trump staffers can meet and plan an insurrection, attempt to overturn the election, and nobody goes to jail. In fact, there's barely even an investigation right now that has produced any fruit. If you would, discuss this with me. Do you think anybody will
4: actually be punished? Well, I do think people will be punished. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, a cabal of people, both government officials and non-government officials that are trying to organize a coup. Yeah, I think that is the essence of what criminal prosecution has to be all about. And just to take one story in this you know, storyline, take John Eastman who some people call a legal scholar. He's neither legal nor a scholar. He's a joker, as far as I can tell. But nonetheless, a joker who Trump listened to. And, you know, it was revealed in the Bob Woodward uh, Costa book that he wrote this, John Eastman wrote this two-page memo that justified basically how to coup. And Eastman, yes, last week, you know, wigged out, went and gave all these interviews saying, I didn't actually believe that memo. I was just told to write it. Now that story wasn't credible on its face. You know, you you've served as a lawyer. I have. We've had hundreds of clients. Of course, we remember every time a client tells us to write a memo. This guy couldn't even said he couldn't believe, couldn't remember who told him to write the memo. I mean, even if it's like a bankruptcy case, you remember who told you to write the memo. Let alone if your task is. Um, Mr. Eastman, please write a two page memo on how to overthrow the government of the United States. I mean, give me a break. Okay, and then of course, things got far worse for John Eastman because there was a leaked tape just a couple of days ago which basically shows Eastman versus Eastman versus Eastman. There are now three John Eastmans. One is the guy who wrote the memo on how to coup. One is the guy who disclaimed the memo last week saying, I was just exploring how to coup. And now we've got the guy on the videotape who disagrees with the second guy and says, no, I'm all in on the coup and my memo is solid and there's no reasonable argument against it. So they're all twisting themselves, Michael, up in pretzels to run away from what they did. Everyone except kind of Donald Trump, who kind of just keeps on repeating the big lie and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, this is a job for law enforcement. It's probably a job more for law enforcement than it is for congressional investigators because. Uh, law enforcement has a wider variety of tools and, you know, bigger threats available to them. And again, I think, you know, if Garland's not going to be willing to do that, um, then uh, that is, you know, pretty much the end of his attorney generalship, because nothing is more important than preserving the rule of law. That's the job. And just because something is too hard um, and you're afraid of the backlash, um, you know, that can never be an excuse. And I certainly hope that isn't how Garland is. I mean, Garland can be tough when he wants to be, um, you know, and prosecuting, you know, Donald Trump or prosecuting his minions around him is going to be a war. They're going to have launched all sorts of stuff. And in a way you actually want a Merrick Garland who's a sober, steady hand, who's not a partisan fire breather, a guy who served as the chief judge of our nation's second highest court for 20 years, never once been overruled by the Supreme Court, a guy who's known for judgment. And so, you know, if he brings these prosecutions, uh, the fact that it's Merrick Garland bringing them, I think is a big bonus um, because he's got credibility and even handedness uh, and the like. If he doesn't bring them, however, I think I really fear for our democracy.
1: And I also fear for Joe Biden and for the Democrats in both the midterms as well as the general election. But I'll tell you, I want to unpack a few things.
4: Well, Michael, on that, I just want to say like, you know, that I know Garland well enough to know that will not enter the calculus. And it's it's hard to know exactly how that plays out, whether, you know, indicting helps Republicans or Democrats. I know Garland's going to make that decision, not on the politics. as it should be. Now, there may be political consequences, and, you know, it's not clear to me one side benefits more than the other, but, but um, but uh, you know, I, I do have faith in Garland that he's not going to put enter that into his calculation.
1: I believe that that would probably be a mistake, considering, like I said before, you don't need 10 dead bodies in a note. You have one body and you already know the guilty parties. And I think we all are very frustrated with Trump's delayed uh, tactics, the Republicans, behavior. But I want to unpack something that you said where uh, John Eastman wrote to Trump a two-page memorandum. And if John Eastman, if you're listening, let me give you a little advice. As somebody that sat next to this orange-crusted, beloviated asshole for more than a decade, Donald Trump doesn't read. So short of it being five bullet points, maybe six, if you catch him in a coherent mood, but two-page memorandum, not a chance he didn't read it. He picked it up, he looked at it, he put it down, and then he said, "Give me the bullet points." And so what did they do? They gave him the bullet points on how he could potentially stop the, uh, the vote and you know cast this doubt, and then, of course, you know, you had just people who I unfortunately got a chance to meet during this whole thing, like a, a putz like Boris Epstein. you know this fucking guy could not. He was afraid he was getting canned every day. He didn't know. All of a sudden, somehow or another, this guy becomes, you know, a special assistant there, there you know, to the, to the White House, a former White House, who knows. But the goal of Boris was all about the spin, right? That Trump, by doing this, has the constitutional power to send the issue back to the states for 10 days to investigate this widespread fraud and report back in advance of this inauguration day of January 20th and da-da-da-da-da-da. And and so on. And all that they were worried about is conveying that message. Because here's what Donald Trump actually learned, and all of these Republicans are following suit: is that the internet is more powerful than anything. That if you could create this lie that will benefit you, it will help you to raise money. It will help you to uh, attract your base, and that base is going to come out with fervor, and they're going to vote and make sure that you come in. Now, just that in mind, Fox News, right? One of the worst, worst um, purveyors of misinformation and disinformation that, that's out there. Fox News is planning to air a Tucker Carlson special that claims that the January 6th was a false flag operation on its new streaming platform. Now, it's obviously both irresponsible and propagates a dangerous narrative to their viewers. As this stuff gets more and more prevalent, do you believe that will inevitably incite more violence as these people continue to get more and more
4: radicalized and extreme? So, um, first of all, Michael, just on the point of whether Donald Trump read the two-page memo, I think you're being a little unfair to Donald Trump because I suspect that two page memo was a translation of the original crayon memo uh, that John Eastman wrote. uh, And maybe he read that at least. Um, Now, I think what you're saying about the Tucker Carlson special and the like just underscores so much the need for an official investigation into the truth, both by Congress and the Justice Department, because particularly with the media enabled, social media enabled as well, kind of, you know, rush to, you know, further and propagate a big lie. Um, if you can lie about the election in which 64 different co- co- courts ruled against Donald Trump, including the United States Supreme Court, including all three of his appointees, if you can lie about that and say, well, I won the election, then yeah, really can lie about anything. And You know, the Eastman memo just demonstrates how you'll get a bunch of lackeys around a president to tell him what he wants to hear. And the scary thing to me is, but for just a few votes, you know, maybe that board in Michigan or what happened in Arizona or a couple of people in Congress, the election could have been thrown out and we could have had a totally different result and we could be living in Donald Trump's America right now. And what that demonstrates to me is that the law often isn't a constraint in the big stuff. And this is, you know, something you talk a bit about in your book that, you know, our constitution and laws were built on the idea that we presumed some good faith on the part of the people. Now, Madison in Federalist 51 says, yeah, but men aren't angels and ambition is going to be necessary to counteract ambition. But I don't think they anticipated a lying, conniving, heartless you know, um, soulless thug like Donald Trump. And Madison also said, you know, law is just a mere parchment barrier. You can't just solve your problems with paper because what makes America America is what's in our hearts. And if you corrupt the heart of America, you corrupt the entire system of checks and balances that Madison architected. And that's where someone like Donald Trump is so devastating. Because he's trying to attack the heart of our democracy. And so, um, and then he's enabled, as you say, by social media and media companies and the like. So, this is an unprecedented threat and why we have to treat it that way.
1: Well, Neil, I think you left out a couple of adjectives for Donald as well. I mean, you left out racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti Semitic, and germophobic all at the same time, right? This is not the person that you want your children to emulate, right? This is a guy who understands media. It's about the only thing he truly understands is media. And he understands that there's a group of people out there who are disheartened, disenfranchised, whatever D word that you want to use, because it's a Donald word. And at the end of the day, these people will gravitate to one of these sort of immoral um, beliefs of Donald Trump, and they cling on to it. And then every time Donald talks, and I talk about it, it's like stochastic terrorism all the time now on, on this program, they hear what they want to hear, and they will use whatever force or whatever energy is necessary in order to battle that. And that's the danger here. So you know, when people like myself start talking about the dangers of Donald Trump, the danger of his supporters because they will get violent at some point in time. I'm not saying it to rile up my my supporters, my listeners. I'm saying it because it's factual. We've seen it already, and not once. We've seen it a multitude of times. It's not just the January 6th insurrection where Trump got onto the microphone and stated, I will see you all over at the Capitol. How about during his rallies when he said, you know, go ahead, punch that guy in the face or refusals to denounce David Duke, or after this young girl got killed, trying to use her death in order to, you know, again, create a narrative that only benefits Donald Trump, because Donald Trump doesn't do anything unless it benefits him and him alone.
4: A hundred percent, I agree. You'll get, you know, I'm shaking my head yes, um, vigorously, Michael. And, you know, I think the other thing I'd say is you know some people think, "Oh, Donald Trump's so smart. Look at all he's accomplished. It's not that hard to prey on the fears and worst elements of our of human nature. like that doesn't take any genius. That's easy to do. Every con man, every strong man can do that. What actually takes guts is leading people toward their better angels and to being better versions of themselves. and you know what you said about you know, would you ever want your kid to be anything like Donald Trump? I think about that all the time because I can't imagine anyone would ever want to raise a kid to be Donald Trump, even if he was the president of the United States. Um, It's just um, so corrosive, so evil, so really against everything this country is about. And I really do. I think about it all the time because my parents came here from another country, from India, and they came here because... They looked at our leaders, they looked at our government, and they said, you know, that's a place where my children can be treated fairly. And I think about that all the time because I think people like my parents now who are living in other countries look at Trump and they say, I wouldn't want to raise my kids there. How could they get a fair shake? We're losing our battle for the hearts and minds of the world um, because... People like Trump appeal to the worst parts of American society, not the best.
1: You know, when you say Donald Trump is a success, it reminds me of sort of two adages, right? That the guy, um, you know, uh, was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, right? There's another Wall Street one, which is very indicative of Donald, which is, you know, (laughs) what's the what's the best way to be worth, you know, a billion dollars? Start out with five, sure. right. And that's Donald. <laughs> I mean, there is no great successes. Let's talk about some of the failures. Trump University, Trump mortgage, Trump state, Trump vodka, Trump casinos. I mean, you can go on and on and on this. Trump uh, network, you know, is uh, like Amway type product, whatever the hell it was. And, I mean, and, it, he and is- And Trump 2020
2: to, election. And Trump 2020 right? election,
1: the biggest one. Very good, very good. Neil, it's pretty obvious that Trump's claims of executive privilege are ridiculous and that he's doing what he always does. And that's, of course, we talked about it, stalling for time and hoping that he could run out the clock. Is there a chance that his appeals can still stall long enough that we'll be into the 2022 midterms with the chance of a Republican majority putting an ultimate stop to all of these investigations against him?
4: Yes, there's absolutely a chance, Michael, if the uh, Justice Department doesn't move quickly to act against Steve Bannon and file those motions to expedite, get court hearings within a week, you know, we can't wait on this. And not because of the midterms alone, but because, as I said, this is the greatest threat to our democracy. So executive privilege is the idea that there's a zone of secrecy around presidential decision making, that you want them to have access to unfettered information and advice, you know, like on foreign policy negotiations or things like that. Executive privilege is not for like how to launch a coup. You know, it's never been used for anything like that. So the claim is bogus in the first instance. It's particularly bogus when it's a former president asserting it as opposed to the current one because the Supreme Court in one of the Nixon cases said it's really up to the current president mostly to assert executive privilege. And then it's certainly you know, bogus when it's about someone who's not even working for the government. Steve Bannon was not working for the government. So all of this has led Donald Trump to file this delusional lawsuit against the National Archives. And he's filed his lawsuit, quote, in his capacity as the 45th president of the United States, a title which, legally speaking, is not a thing. There is no you know, full capacity of the former president or anything like that. And he filed his lawsuit, as they say, against the National Archives to block Bannon's documents and others from being turned over to the investigators. And the archives, of course, also housed our United States Constitution, which makes it the repository of two sets of documents that Donald Trump would like us to ignore. Well, look, sometimes <laughs> this is,
1: it's so, I received so many, you know, text messages and emails and communications on social media. And I'll tell you what a lot of people do believe. A lot of people believe that the Department of Justice is actually waiting for the District Attorney here in New York and our Attorney General Tish James as well, along with the Attorney General in Georgia and some of these other actions that are pending against Trump, that they're waiting for those to come first. In that way, it will negate the necessity for them to continue with it. now. I hope that's not true. I don't believe it. I do know that the DA and the AG here in New York are vigorously pursuing their claims against Trump, the Trump Organization, and various members and so on. We obviously all know that the AG in Georgia are you know, pursuing their claim for the voter fraud and the continuous big lie and so on. Do you think there's any truth to that at all? Again, you know, I'm not looking to shit all over Merrick Garland, but- We also know that this committee was established in the summer. We're now almost at November, you know, um, and so come on, you know, we're at the beginning of November. This is is not a joke anymore. Something has to move. And we can't be so calculated that it's going to be, it's slow walking because he will drag out the clock. That is exactly what he does. He's doing it to me in a personal lawsuit that I have against him and the Trump organization. They just slow walk it, knowing that the courts, because of COVID and his ability to slow walk cases, that he's going to play and he's going to hope that the midterms come around and change things.
4: Yeah, so I have no inside information, Michael, into the Justice Department's investigation, but I severely doubt that Merrick Garland is waiting for the state investigations um, in New York and Georgia. And that's for a simple reason. They're about different stuff. You know, they're certainly not about January 6th. Um, And so, uh, you you know, the Justice Department does, when you have the same crime, which is both federal and state, engage in a complicated dialogue with local and state prosecutors. Like, you know, I'm special prosecutor in the George Floyd case, and it's been recently, you know, revealed that there's a federal indictment against Derek Chauvin. you know, so uh, you know, but the, and we went first and tried him in state court, as as you all know. So you know, there are uh, instances in which both the states and the federal government will bring a prosecution, and who goes first is a complicated question when it's a common set of facts. But here, the facts in, are are different, uh, and you know, and I, I, they could both be done at the same time. So I don't think that's what accounts for the delay here. I think it's something else. I sure hope you're right about the New York investigation and you obviously know more about it than anyone on the outside, I suspect. Um, but, you know, again, my question is, it's been a long time, you know, it didn't take that long to investigate this. Let, you know, I know they hired, you know, FTI, some consulting firm and the like to go through all the financial data. But at this point, it's time to put up or shut up.
1: Right. I mean, they could have gone through that financial data in 45 days. I mean, they took from me about 14, 15 million documents. We had 45 days within which to resolve it. Uh, another issue is take the SDNY. They charge me with campaign finance violation where Donald Trump is a co-conspirator. He was co-conspirator number one. Not only was it done at his direction, but for his benefit. All of a sudden, the Southern District of New York, Tom McKay, Nick Ruse, this Andrea Griswold, uh, what's his name, Kazami, Robert Kazami, Um, Jeffrey Berman. Everybody steps away. There's a whole slew of sealed indictments that were sitting there. All of a sudden, they step away from it, and they said, there's not enough information in order to pursue this case. This is why people are so angry with Merrick Garland. Now, I know Merrick Garland has nothing to do with the Southern District of New York's corruption, has nothing to do with it at all. It's just the fact that Donald Trump seems to be Teflon. He seems to be able to get away with everything. And that's the reason why Merrick Garland has to step it up. I know it's not his nature, but we need somebody who's in between the Merrick Garland that we know and the
4: crazy Bill Barr, somebody that's willing to move things along. Right. So, you know, I have no idea about the Southern District, you know, being corrupt or anything like that. I I guess I severely doubt that 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 occurred. But I do think they might have been under orders from Bill Barr and others to shut down their investigation. And I think it's up to Merrick Garland to figure out what happened there and to bring the appropriate law enforcement actions. And I 100% agree with you. We need an attorney general, not who's, I mean, we need an attorney general who's going to go where the facts lead and take the actions necessary on something this severe. But, Neil,
1: if in fact that they shut the investigation down because of Bill Barr or direction, that sounds to me like corrupt, right? Everybody is supposed to be oh, but, equal. Uh, but if the corruption law.
4: there would be a, a Michael, the corruption there would be at the top. It'd be at the at the at the attorney general level, not at the Southern District level. That's all I'm
1: saying. Except they're the ones that actually dropped the case. So the fact is, if they know that there's a crime. You have to.
4: But, But the Justice Department is like India. It's all hierarchical and works by, you know, so if the attorney general tells you you have to stand down you got to stand down. You might resign, but you got to stand down. Yeah, well, none of these guys resigned.
1: Instead, they went to get, you know, seven figure uh, payouts between Lowenstein Sandler, Davis, Polk, McDermott, Will & Emery, you know, Guggenheim Partners and so on. Doesn't sound like they left under bad terms or bad circumstances. But let me just move on for a second. What do you believe is lurking right now in those White House papers that could implicate Trump his role in citing or not stopping the violence on January sixth, or more importantly, like what would you like to know?
4: Yeah, so I definitely want to see all of um, all of the text messages uh, and commentary, not just you know. I don't know that Trump knows how to type, um, but you know, people around him uh, and what they were saying at the time. One of the things that I, I understand is 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 a fruitful source is the videotapes of Trump's you know, statement on January 6th. So you might remember Trump finally, like many hours after the violence went and gave a video statement saying, you know, go home. We love you, but go home and the like. Uh, It's my understanding from reporting that uh, that was, you know, the sixth or seventh take uh, of that and (laughs) that the prior ones were so inflammatory that, they took that that they couldn't release any of them. And here's why, Michael, that's relevant, as you know, but just for our listeners, uh, you know, one of the things in criminal law is mens rea, criminal intent. So two actions are totally different depending on someone's state of mind. You know, if, you know, Jane is driving down the street and runs over Bob, it's one thing if, you know, she sneezes and it was done by mistake and didn't see Bob. It's another if she hates Bob and is trying to mow him down. Totally different crimes um, and totally different results. Similarly, here, there's a big question: what was Trump actually thinking on January 6th? Was he just his normal, totally delusional, incompetent self and unable to just, you know, quell the violence? Or was he actively trying to foment it in some way? Um, and so what I really want is to understand and get those documents and videotapes and the like that go to Donald Trump's state of mind. And then as much around the text messages and emails to say, what was Trump doing? What were the actual actions he took? But not just by the way, Trump. I think, you know, this. Is, everyone involved at the White House bears responsibility for this. Meadows and the like, you know, Cash Patel, all these, you know, as we were talking about earlier, Star Wars bar figures that, you know, don't deserve any place in our democracy and may indeed deserve uh, a place in jail.
1: So, so far, I would say I've been around 85, maybe 90% accurate in my predictions, including, of course, when I turned around over almost three years ago today, when I said before the House Oversight Committee and uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings that if Donald Trump loses the election, that there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. Now we hear that that line uh, being used every single day. I can tell you, because of my, my personal relationship and knowledge of Donald J. Trump, that his participation in this was active, and that his intent was to foment continued action and aggression by these insurrectionists. And I'll tell you how I know it, because when he told everybody to go to the Capitol, where did he go? He went straight back to the White House went probably upstairs, I bet if I had a time lapse, I could almost call it to the second, turned on the multiple televisions to watch the people so that he could turn around and see the MAGA hats, he could see the people in their um, paramilitary gear waving the Trump 2020 flag, MAGA signs, you name it. He eats this shit up, he lives for this. This is his oxygen and I've said it over and over. He needs the adulation of the crowd like we need oxygen to breathe. And it's sad, especially when those who are giving him the adulation are doing so while storming the Capitol, while spreading feces all over the artwork, while breaking the beautiful statues in the people's house. And he was loving this shit. Why? Because it's done on his behalf, our supreme leader. And I say this again so often. I wish people, we should almost like Plaster it somewhere that Donald Trump never wanted to be president of the United States of America. He wanted to be a dictator. That's why he refuses to, you know, denigrate or say anything negative about people like Vladimir Putin or his love affair that he's having with Kim Jong-un. I mean, that in and of itself is like a fucked up comment. I'm having a love affair with Kim Jong-un. Right. I mean, come on. Seriously. But he wants to be the supreme leader. He wants you. When he walks down the street to be screaming and clapping and yelling for him, right, the way that they do in North Korea, he he needs that to exist.
4: Yeah. So, Michael, I agree with you. And I think there's even a simpler route to just demonstrate Trump's state of mind. Normally, the law says, you know, inaction is something you can't infer much from, you know, if you stand by Um, when something bad's happening. But there's a real difference between ordinary inaction and something like what Donald Trump was doing, as you say, watching the TVs and the like. Nobody in this country wasn't watching the TVs, whether you're president or not. Everyone was glued to the violence and horrified by, you know, people in my city in DC, we were fleeing the city. You know, we were worried about the violence and the like. So everyone knew about it. And in the face of that, You do nothing for hour after hour after hour. As the president of the United
1: States of America. As
4: the president of the United (laughs) States. I mean, you know, literally I had friends who were going to the Capitol just to try and like protect people, you know, just ordinary citizens, like just trying to, you know, quell the violence, you know, ordinary people. The idea that like you're the president and you just sit by and do nothing, um, that itself tells you all you need to know about the president's
1: state of mind. So Neil, let me ask you this. After all the bullshit and all the drama around Bannon defying this subpoena, what, what do you think happens when he finally testifies? I mean, I've talked about this before. Won't he just simply take the fifth um, and avoid any real incrimination for himself or for
4: Trump? Uh, certainly, Bannon could try and take the fifth. Um, there's no question about that. Um, but then he can um, be prosecuted and, and and go to jail. And I suspect that is what he's looking at right now. I mean, the Steve Bannons of the world got so used to a Donald Trump in office who would protect them. Um, although, you know, Trump couldn't even protect him fully because he got convicted. Uh, but then uh, nonetheless, he got pardoned by Donald Trump afterwards. So they are so used to impunity that I think they just kind of hope they'll have it again. And maybe Bannon will get thrown to jail, but maybe Trump will win in 2024 and re-pardon him again. So, but I think it's, I think it's bad news for the Steve Bannons of the world. And I expect that Merrick Garland will move Well, Well, how,
1: how could he be incarcerated for asserting the fifth? We all have the, you know, a constitutional right to take the fifth against self-incrimination. Now we know that he talks about all of this stuff uh, at length, ad nauseum. Um, if he took the fifth, would that preclude him from speaking about this, for example, on his show or on television or wherever else that he spews his bullshit?
4: Well, so right now he's being prosecuted for contempt for not uh, for not telling the truth. He hasn't asserted the Fifth Amendment, and so currently that's not a defense. If he tries to make it a defense. You know, one tool law enforcement always has is the ability to give them, you know, what's called immunity and just say, look, we're not going to prosecute you. We just want to know the truth. And then he's got to testify. Otherwise, he faces a contempt action uh, again. So I think law enforcement has good tools available to it. And yes, you're absolutely right, Michael. When someone takes the fifth, they generally aren't supposed to go blab on TV or in social media (laughs) and the like about that, um, you know, it's a little bit inconsistent. It's not formally inconsistent with an invocation of the Fifth Amendment, but it's not good practice, which I'm sure will guarantee that Steve Bannon will do exactly that.
1: Well, let me ask you this then. What do you think is the likelihood of a Trump subpoena from a from the January 6th committee? You think that'll happen?
4: I I think it has to happen. I think I don't understand how it hasn't happened yet, quite honestly, Michael. So it seems to me incredibly important that the investigation get at the truth and no better witness than Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. So there's actually no better witness than Donald Trump because Donald Trump never tells the truth. And that's that's really a great thing because he will not remember from the first minute to the last minute. I just have two more questions for you if we can, you know, just we'll sort of wrap it because, as I told you, the hour does go by quickly. The video currently circulating of John Eastman not only defending his infamous memo, but boasting that his plan would have worked if it hadn't been for Mike Pence certainly dooms his defense. Now, just five days ago, he was trying to disavow the whole thing, as you had said, and he never really believed what he wrote. And this is what you were talking about, the three different John Eastmans. What kind of accountability can we expect from, you know, for Eastman, and what would you like to see ultimately happen to him?
4: Well, you can see how John Eastman and Donald Trump get along. You know, snakes of a scale hiss the same tail. And you know, you can also see and it's not just the lying but and the obfuscation, but the incompetence of the thing. Neither of these guys can coo effectively. They can't lie effectively. Um it's you know, it's pathetic. Um, I think that Eastman has to face responsibility for this. I don't know if it's necessarily. Criminal responsibility, or they're not. That may be a complicated question, but there should be professional and disciplinary consequences. Um, you know, you and I have, have been privileged to have a law degree. And part of that law degree is, you know, respect for the Constitution and laws of the United States. And different people can differ on what that means. But the arguments in this memo are so fundamentally inconsistent with what being an officer of the court is. I think, you know, not almost probably maybe never have called for disciplinary action of a lawyer before publicly, you know, generally think this is something that should be privately handled by bars uh, and the like, but this is now public. And I think it's very important that um, that the committees do look into this and this kind of behavior.
1: But Neil, both Richard Painter, I know you know him, as well as Norm Eisen, have been recent guests on this show, and they believe that Trump can be blocked from running again for president for his violation of the 14th Amendment for inciting this insurrection. Now, Merrick Garland, the DOJ, is unlikely to try and prosecute Trump for his role in the January 6th, nor for his actions in Georgia, likely leaving it up again to the Fulton County DA, what I was talking
4: about before. What do you believe should happen here? What do you think will happen here? Yeah, the 14th Amendment Clause is really interesting. It's done to basically avoid having insurrectionists try and be part of the federal government. And, you know, there are a bunch of people now, um, both Donald Trump and uh, some members of Congress who are insurrectionists. And, uh, And so I do think that that constitutional 14th Amendment option is available and should be particularly looked at if Donald Trump isn't prosecuted. My view is that there is a lot of evidence against Donald Trump, and I could see, uh, you know, the prosecution, you know, going forward. And um, and if there is a criminal option available, if the state of mind and actus reus evidence is good enough, by all means, we have to do it because, as you've said many times, this guy is a clear and present danger to our democracy. And the first job of law enforcement, the first job of the attorney general, the first job of the justice department is to protect the rule of law. So
1: Neil, like I said, we're coming down to the hour. I have one last question for you. And it's, it's a personal one to me because I'm very open in terms of how I feel about Matt Gates in terms of what he did to me, what he tried to do to me on behalf of his supreme leader. So I want to switch gears in that, just for this one question, talk to you about Matt Gates. Now, it was announced last week that the Department of Justice was adding two more prosecutors to the team, one with expertise in child exploitation crimes, and the other is a top official in the DOJ's public integrity section. When the DOF expands a team like that, what does it tell you about the case? And do you think that we'll see an indictment against Matt Gates soon?
4: So um, it's a very serious step. Uh, Whenever you're investigating pretty seriously a member of Congress, you try and bring someone in from the public integrity section. They're used to handling these kinds of high stakes cases involving political figures. And so it suggests to me the maturing of the investigation uh, and the like. Now, it's hard for me to know um, from the outside how serious the evidence is. It sure looks like it's pretty serious and it looks like his uh, wingman or whatever in the prostitution scandal and the like has- Joel Greenberg. Yeah, uh, is working for the, for the federal government and giving them information. So if I'm Matt Gates, you know, I'd be pretty worried at this point. And, you know, I suspect that's why Gates is doing all this MAGA stuff and, and trying to, you know, fundraise off of this and the like and playing the victim card. Um, But the facts are going to be the facts, and Matt Gates doesn't have a lackey Justice Department anymore to rely on. He's got a real one, and that he's got to contend with.
1: And you think that there's a possibility for an indictment soon?
4: Uh, Again, I don't know the timing, but you know this has been going on for quite a while, um, and with a cooperating witness like this wingman guy, I suspect it would be soon.
1: Well, Neil, let me thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insight. Just thank you for coming on, Mayak. Hope I hope to have you on again interesting conversation.
4: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Be well, Neil. And now for today's mea culpa. If Neil Katyal represents the best and brightest of our legal minds, I am left with a significant amount of hope that accountability for Trump and his band of criminal co-conspirators is not only possible, but forthcoming. Yet... I am still puzzled by how it was possible for this group of fucking imbeciles to come as close as they did to overturning our democracy in the first place. If what happened wasn't so deadly serious, it would be almost laughable how incompetent each and every one of these people were in carrying out their duties. And that's what truly frightens me. Replace Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, John Eastman, and these other turds for competent, legal minds and their quest to overthrow this election seems quite plausible. And that's what the GOP is counting on. As we are distracted by the histrionics of Trump and investigating this clown car coup, the GOP is stacking the state election boards with fellow travelers willing to go farther in their quest to undermine future elections. We got lucky this time around that Trump is such a fucking idiot and surrounds himself with the absolute bottom of the barrel. But next time we won't be so lucky. Between the voting measures being pushed through GOP-controlled state houses and a new generation of candidates running on Trump's big lie, we are looking at a frightening future where each and every election will be its own referendum on the future of democracy. Imagine having to go through all this again in 2024 and then in 2028 and every fucking time that we cast a ballot. This is what we're up against and why accountability for Trump and all these bad actors is so crucial. But justice must be swift and merciless. Otherwise, where is the deterrent? They'll try and try again until they succeed because nobody will stop them. We must not let this happen, or this nation is doomed for the foreseeable future. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.